Hello, and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network, where we dive deep into our both most nice and accurate work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Morehouse. Yes, and we are back to talk about Malafide 10.5. Um, so 10.4 ended with Mags and Molly uh, preparing to do a familiar relationship with each other, or Mags proposing that to Molly. Uh and we don't continue that beat immediately. Blake has gone away to walk around a uh, ice rink just for a relaxing walk. <laughs> Blake has got to work on his, like, nosiness. It's yep. seriously, like, how am I meant to snoop on the residence of Jacob's Bell through him if he's not even going to try and be, like, really nosy? Yeah, he yeah. Uh, he's he does a bunch of snooping this chapter, and he's not very good at it, it seems. That's true. That's true. It's he, not his forte. He needs to work on his eavesdropping skills. Um, no, so, yeah, Blake Blake gives Mags and Molly some space to work out their ritual, I suppose, which makes sense. Um, although I don't think it's super necessary. It's um, It's nice of him. You know, like, remember when we gave Sandra shit for kind of watching over Mags doing the connect- connection ritual thing mm. to get info on her? Like, this is almost the opposite of that, because... He didn't snoop, but he probably would be justified in snooping, whereas yeah, Sandra I think was so. kind of the opposite. I mean, it's um, not like Mags and Molly's relationship was super nice and not volatile. Like, maybe being around for backup would have been good. Also, I mean, it's his cousin, you know, yeah. like you could argue that he has, a, you know, a, an interest in the arrangement. Yeah. And his best slash only friend. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, something interesting that I've noticed... Since Blake is walking around like a kind of a frozen lake here, right? It it mm. it definitely feels like we're revisiting locations from the first arc, kind of in reverse order, right? So last chapter we had the cafe, whereas this chapter it's a frozen lake, which kind of calls back. I, mean, I don't think it's the same frozen lake, but because that one was further away, presumably, but it it does yeah, call back yeah. to the first arc when Blake was being chased by the um, the fjord bold, the bird skull creatures. I I wonder what, what it's signifying. I mean, we've kind of got themes of Blake's rebirth, and so this kind of ties loosely into that, but maybe there's something else going on, but I just can't quite place it. No, I really liked when you when you wrote, brought this up because this sort of made a bunch of things click for me. Like, I think, as, as you sort of said, we're revisiting a lot of, I think, not just places, but ideas from Arc 1. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of them are kind of inverted, you know, uh, like he made friends with the Faceless Woman and the Revenant, uh, whereas they were used to torture him um way way back then i think that was still in arc one uh um, maybe or early arc two <laughs> uh and then you know he he's now he's summoning or not quite summoning he's bringing a monster into a lake whereas before he was trying to get away from them mm. um he just got attacked by a crazy ghost rather than you know going out and and kind of taking control of them yeah uh and then obviously he was sort of the one helping to manipulate people in the cafe whereas laird was the one doing that to him last time so there's yeah. sort of i think Arc 10 is sort of I th- really going to be all about Blake finding his place in, in the new world. And we've sort yeah. of talked about that a lot. And this is, we're seeing this as a, I think there's a lot of intentional contrasts and comparisons being made to last time he sort of made his place in, in Jacob's Bell. Yeah, I guess it makes sense for it to be an inversion of Arc 1 because Blake's position in the mirror is inverted from what it was before yeah. with Rose being in the mirror. Um, and maybe- he's also very different... Uh, person yeah probably the best word maybe the answer is that it's just a way of showing put him in similar situations to the ones that he was in before and see contrast how he acts now to how he acted in arc one 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, I, I think um, it, it may not be just as simple as all contrasts and all comparisons, but I think it's probably not an accident that so many of the things in Arc 10, uh, for want of a better word, reflect what happened in Arc 1. <laughs> That's the perfect word, Elliot. There is no better <laughs> word. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to read out a quote here, which just led me down an interesting train of thought. Blake thinks, I didn't breathe. My heart didn't beat unless I willed it to. The smallest of movements made me rustle and creak, even snap like so many broken twigs if I went too long without moving. Um, uh, This is interesting to me because it's Blake kind of explicitly being aware of how other he's feeling, which he's kind of hinted at but not directly confronted. I I still Mm. feel like he's, I mean, he's observing it here, but he's still not confronting what he actually thinks about that. I think he needs to do that at some point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I I completely agree. Um, like physically, he is definitely becoming more and more other. Uh, even that boost Faisal gave him, like sort of just slowed things down. Like I yep. think that's what Faisal said it was going to do. Like yeah, it kind didn't, of temporary didn't fix anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that was you know he he really needs to um plug the drain. Fully wow, these or... these puns, Elliot, very <laughs> on point. Um, no, but like what's interesting is I think there's some good signs, and Faisal points them out as well. Um, that at least on a mental level, Blake is still quite human. Like yeah, uh, like he hasn't lost his is... humanity. That's for sure. Yeah, and so there's a lot of effort put into, particularly in this chapter, physically describing how other he is, but there's sort of less that jumped out to me that made him seem mentally that. And I mean, you know, I, that's I'm kind of happy with that. Like, he can have crazy, cool body adaptations or whatever, as long as he's still Blake on the inside. Yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true. Um, I wonder, because we have, I mean, one of the things we've been hitting this chapter is he's getting more and more other, but I guess that's mostly... Uh, well, I guess it hasn't mostly been physical, right? Because there have been a lot of things, and even in this chapter, I still think there's some mental things which seem quite other. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess he's halfway between, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll talk about it more, but I, I definitely walked away from this chapter with a sense that he uh, mentally is is coming out a bit more on top of things. Mm. Physically, I, I completely agree. Not at all. He's physically a mess when it comes to his humanity, but I think, like, uh, from a mental and emotional standpoint, he's doing a lot better than he was in ten point one. Let's um, and let, maybe that's what Faisal's uh, you know, thing mostly fixed. I don't know. Mm, I guess we'll see. Yeah, let's think about. Let's discuss that a bit more when we get to the scene with the cars. I think there's some more thematic yeah. relevance there that we can bring up again. Um, but for now, Blake's on the ice rink, and Faisal appears and talks to him, kind of, and they have this conversation that further expands what they've been discussing about angels and demons and the conflict between them and, and where humans kind of fit in, in this equation. And Faisal seems to think that humans fit generally to tip the scales slightly towards good. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, there's a ton I want to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, one of the quotes I wanted to pull out that Faisal mentions is he says, uh, my motives aren't angelic, but I do believe our actions are necessary. Mm. Uh, talking about him and Johannes's overall uh, motivations. And I, I do hate to say it, but this makes me a little bit more pro Faisal. Um, I mean, he's a good boy. Capital G, good boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's so many mentions of his tail swishing in this chapter. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, I keep I, I, like... <laughs> They, they they contrast so well with how powerful and regal he is. I loved uh, it because I, I was looking it up. I, I saw the same thing and I kind of in my head forget that he is a dog. And he's described <laughs> as an Afghan hound, which if you don't know what it looks like, it's like a very shaggy kind of 
I mean, it is relatively regal looking of a dog. It looks like the kind of dog that a, a king or queen would have. Um, but mm. it's still just funny to think about such high concepts of morality coming from the mouth of a dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those little reminders kind of humble his his position a bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, I just sort of wanted to say I have given angels and in general the side of good uh kind of a bit of shit for perpetuating this this shitty system mm. uh so i do want to give Faisal props for not just sticking with that and kind of trying to do something a bit different and bringing about change as we'll talk about a lot later mm. um I, I still probably think him and johannes are on the wrong path uh to bring about that change but at least they're trying mm. yeah fair enough i mean Faisal kind of talks about later um about or well okay we'll get to this in a second i think you have more to say here before we start diving into this yeah yeah um so the only other thing i wanted to bring up is Faisal quickly mentions that uh angels don't really have any inherent uh methods of communication there's no angel radio in this universe uh and or apparently some of the bigger ones might but Faisal's just kind of guessing mm. and i think this really highlights to me one of the issues I have with the good is that they're all just kind of still doing their own thing and in a way kind of being selfish about it. Like, why aren't they coordinating? Just coordinate. Like, mm. what yeah, are you they doing? theoretically have the power to be able to communicate with each other. I yeah, I, I think about this and I think I contrast it to demons, right? And obviously demons don't communicate with each other because they're, they're chaotic and any well, yeah, interactions they... that demons have are kind of animus and like you know aggressive towards each other um well they thrive in in chaos like they, you know they represent entropy so yeah. like of course they're not really communicating they're all just running around fucking shit up i, I mean yeah. you know obviously we've got man levin and lewis so we know that to some extent at least some of the higher-ups of them network quite well mm. uh but yeah like it, it would make much more sense for the good guys to you know coordinate because they're all on the same side right like mm. what why not just work together I do like, I do like, you know, thematically that Blake was the closest to the demons when he was on the other side of the mirror. Now that he's kind of reflected, he's dealing more with angels, which is a mm. kind of fun thematic beat. Um, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. Yeah, so, which presumably means the the inverse. Rose is now mostly dealing with the lawyers, and she seems to explicitly uh, invoke their invoke their aura a few times. <laughs> anyway. Um, so they're talking about all kinds of things. I I think one of my favorite parts about this conversation was Blake kind of bemoaning that he do- didn't see a creation mirror to match the abyss that is, in his mind, destruction. Um, and, and there's some interesting points that Faisal brings up. One that I quite like is the abyss isn't necessarily destruction, it's change, and change is a form of creation, um, which I think is interesting because yes. we're now kind of explicitly seeing that through Blake, right? He is... You know, he he may have thought he was a person, but he wasn't actually an a, a really you know a, a real human before. But now he's gone into the abyss. He's come out, and he is something that seems to have a more uh, aware, possibly a stronger foothold in the universe, just because he is more aware of what he is. Well, yeah, I mean, as you said, it ties into what Blake is going through right now very well because Blake has sort of been thinking of drains bad and Faisal sort of challenges that and he says the the drains may just represent change and that doesn't inherently have to be bad and obviously they talk a lot here about humans and free will and where they sit into things and I think like that all sort of ties together here Blake is someone who is you know I think Faisal uses the term one step away from being human to the point where Mm. it doesn't really matter and he's just undergone a change and it's sort of now 
a bit up to him whether it's good or bad. Mm. Uh, and so, like, I think thematically it fits into the current struggle of Blake uh, really well, this idea of finally sort of challenging the concept of the drains as inherently bad. Because, mm. like, no doubt it's a miserable fucking place, but change is hard, right? Well, um, I don't know. Like, this is the thing. Everybody says, hey, the drains is such a miserable place. And yes, we did see it as quite bleak, but... The life that Blake had before he went to the drain compared with <laughs> the life that some people seem to lead in the drain, putting aside the blackfish, which I think was the worst part, um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it was a slum. Like, it was a slum and it was about as bad as being in a slum in the real world is. Blake already lived in a kind of, you know, karmic slum in the real world. So really, to him, being in the abyss was maybe a small step up from what his life was like outside of it. I think for me, I'm more th- coming at it from this perspective of if the if the abyss or the drains or whatever we're calling it now uh, do represent change, uh, like uh, the the miserableness of it and the, the way it's trying to grind you down is just sort of pushing you to change because you know, mm. you know like, as I just said, like, change is hard, it's uncomfortable, it's it's tough. Hopefully, though, it's worth it when you come out the other end. And so the people kind of suffering in the drains are also the people who needed to change but kind of refused to Mm. um and i mean that has interesting implications for green eyes now that i think about it kind of considering she she skipped out uh yeah well she has changed right like obviously she changed a lot in the drains but maybe this wasn't her final form as it were (laughs) uh yeah so i'm I'm very interested to see where we go with green eyes because i i hope it's nothing bad but let's talk about that more when we get there yeah um so, yeah, heading back to, to Faisal and, and his whole thing with Blake that you mentioned, um, I, I like this bit where Blake tries to talk about humans as a sort of choir of angels and, mm. and try to convince himself that they're all inherently good because he doesn't want to be uh, have the option to be bad, basically, is mm. my understanding of what he's going for here, which, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like he, It seems like a bit of a reach, but I like the idea. <laughs> it does feel like a reach, doesn't it? Um, but I like Faisal's, the way Faisal counters this isn't to disagree with the idea, because Faisal does kind of see it as an interesting idea. The way he counters it is just kind of pointing out to Blake, like, what are you trying, who are you trying to convince here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, and and then, I mean, yeah, Faisal's kind of like, I think you're doing a pretty bang up job, which is like, nobody has actually said that to Blake. And I was just like, so happy when someone finally did. (laughs) um someone took his side finally yeah someone finally said hey you know what you've been fucking trying and props for that it was just like oh my god it it took 10 arcs but we finally had someone (laughs) say this to blake gold star for blake um anyway but yeah so so obviously uh, we've already touched on a bit but i think the big thing here is the concept of like the abyss representing change um and i wanted to tie uh, i wanted to tie this into the the grander scheme of pact because mm. like something we've talked about a lot on here is that pact is representing this this world order that is kind of shit but it rewards those who are at the top and it's it encourages self-perpetuation <laughs> um, yep and, and and like you know just sort of the same cycle over and over again yes which is um, to say pact is a capitalist system well yes um and and you know, people talk a lot about breaking the wheel and making change, and then they just sort of end up in the system. Uh, you know, we haven't really seen anyone actually manage to successfully do much mm. um, on a grand scale, as, as far as I'm aware. I mean, Black Lamb's Blood talked about one way you could, which yep. is they wanted to uh, update the Seal of Solomon. Um, 
uh, speaking of, I mean, Solomon obviously brought about change a couple of thousand years ago uh, yeah. with the seal of Solomon. Yeah. Um, but it seems like when you want to do something like that, you've got like a hell of a large amount of baggage to bring with you to try and get everyone like to agree to the change. Yeah. Uh, especially because the people who matter are the people who are benefiting the most from the current system. So you got to convince them to, you know, uh, well, you know, leave a system that they're doing very well out of personally. Can we talk about this a bit more? Because like, this is one of the reasons why I'm pro Johannes, right? Because he is yeah. the 1%, right? He is in this position where he has access to a crazy amount of power. And honestly, he could probably do something like getting married and starting a dynasty. He, he has the uh, chops to do it. But instead, what he's doing is doing something that he sees as, you know, genuinely breaking the system to prepare for a better world. Like... Uh, this is one of the reasons I, I like him so much is because he's he is, you know, privileged and he's taking that and investing it in a way that feels like it's for the greater good, at least to him, if not to us. Yeah, exactly. And I, I sort of I, I've been thinking about this a lot because like the sort of stuff Fazel talks about here got me thinking about, you know, as I sort of said, like he's pro change and he's pro um, like not just following the word of the good. And so I was like, hmm, like, yeah, it kind of seems like he's on the right track. Like I keep giving them shit, but also now it does kind of feel like they're speaking my language. Like and- if we compare him to the Duchamps as an example, or Sandra, right? Like I, yeah. I think, I think the thing that sells it for me is it's kind of easy to be non-threatening when you're maintaining the status quo. Like Sandra mm. is... Sandra could come across so nice because she is ma- really maintaining the status quo. Johannes is is pricklier ideologically to come around to, but it's because he's trying to disrupt. He's not trying to just keep the the chains as they are. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I really like that comparison. Um, but I, I still I, I still can't help but think that towards the end of this, I'm going to come away with the idea that Johannes and Faisal had this sort of right idea. They're they're trying to bring about change, and I agree with that. But they're probably, I'm almost certain they're going to be going about it the wrong way. Um, all these Pied mm. Piper uh, affiliations just don't sit right with me. His obsession with children. Um, <laughs> yeah, fair. Like, I'm wondering if maybe his plan is to set himself up as a bit of a, like, god. Like, maybe not literally in the world of Pact, but, you know, like, maybe his idea is like, oh, we just need a good dictator who, who makes the right decisions. Mm. A benevolent um, dictator. Yeah, uh, and, you know, obviously he's affiliated with angels, so the comparison to uh, <laughs> Lucifer's already been yeah. made. So, like, it's sort of there. And, I mean, you know, like, he's got the Pied Piper thing, so maybe he, maybe he's planning to, like, exert control over the population. Mm. Um, For their own you know, good, sort of, you mean. Yeah, a sort of wolf, ram, and heart <laughs> type thing where it's like, you know, oh, I've, I've just made everyone better Yeah. Um, by, by sort of controlling them to be good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, these are my favorite kinds of villains, the ones who I, I sort of on a level agree with the point that they're going for, but they're going about it all the wrong way. Like Amon from uh, season one of The Legend of Korra is my favorite example. Like I agree mm. with Amon's general point. I don't like what he was doing. Well, yeah, he um, had some good ideas until he started, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> treating a group like they were second class <laughs> citizens, right? Uh, That's always yeah. how that fascism stuff kind of goes. <clears throat> yeah, e- exactly. And... um. Uh, and I mean, I think that's where, cause I think the lawyers will be a part of whatever starts to happen towards the end of the story. And, uh, if, if Johannes and maybe Blake or whoever are sort of trying to lead a revolution, cause I think we have Jacob's Bell mm. and 
it's this perfect opportunity to try and bring about a new system, at least in a local sense, because yeah. where it, currently Sandra, at least, is fighting to establish, um, you know, a Lord-based system, same as what everywhere else seems to have. Mm. If you can sort of take control and then implement something very different, I mean, that's that's as good an opportunity as you're going to have, right? Um, and mm-hmm. I wonder if, you know, traditionally revolutions of this sort have a pretty good chance of uh, bringing someone into power who's even worse. Mm. And uh, I wonder if the lawyers are going to try and be that person. So you think the lawyers are, you know, here to you know upset the power dynamic in their favour rather than for the general good? I mean, I definitely don't think that they're for the general good, so sure. yes. Um, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, uh, but yeah, like I'm very interested to see where we go with this Jacob's Bell stuff, but I have a feeling it's going to, like, or my guess at the moment is it's going to start to turn into this thing of like the, the ideology of a new system versus the old system, and then I have a feeling the lawyers might sneak in and just fuck everything up. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see, I suppose. Um, so, you know, after Blake and Faisal have their... Uh, have their long ethical discussions about good versus evil. Uh, Faisal leaves, and he leaves behind a a group of pipes in a kind of rough loop. Um, And Blake wrangles this loop, eventually kind of figuring out it's a portal, which opens in the ice, allowing green eyes to come through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and of course this is when you realise why he was at a lake, uh, (laughs) specifically. Um, And and I mean, I love how Wabo uses the imagery... So that you know exactly what this is well before Green Eyes pops out. Yeah. Uh, like, first of all, it's just a set of pipes. So you're sort of like, yay, pipes. Yeah. Um, and then when the portal opens, uh, I think the first line is something like, you know, there was the dim flicker of the old light bulb or something. And you're just yep. like, yep, that's the shithole that we know and love. Uh, yeah, <laughs> bring and on the Green, green eyes. eyes. Yes. And she's so adorable, right? Um, she doesn't <laughs> talk. She's She's kind of stuck underwater and can't talk at this part, but... She's just so happy to be back in reality, and it's so adorable. Um, yeah, I mean, the bit where she literally crosses her heart when promising not to kill people to Blake is <laughs> fucking cute as hell. Yeah. Um, also, she has teeth the size of fingers, which is terrifying. That's uh, adorable. <laughs> I mean, she's just, yeah, she's so adorably terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep, I'm kind of great. just sitting, sitting here hoping that it's all going to be okay. Like, there's that slight little paranoid bit of me that's like, oh, is she going to do something fucking dumb and ruin this? But I'm just, I'm just hoping she's just going to be a scary little lake monster that, you know, just frightens people. Yeah. Yeah, he's hoping. Um, so Green Eyes and Blake hang out a little bit, not talking, obviously, or they talk, but not really, uh, before Blake <laughs> has to head out. Um, and he kind of feels, I guess impotent is the word here. He kind of feels like he doesn't really know what to do. And so he decides, what should I do? I'll just go after one of the families. Let's let's fuck with the Bahames. Sorry, the the way you just phrased uh, Green Eyes and Blake communicating reminded me of the Faceless Woman and the Revenant for some reason. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It, it is, isn't it? Uh, like, they should go on a double date. It'll be great. <laughs> um, but uh, it, yeah, so before Blake goes off to um, harass the Bahames is probably the best word mm. uh, for it. He has, like, a couple of interesting thoughts um, about, like, you know, what he wants to do. Uh, first of all, one of the fun ones is that he's pretty sure most of the Thorburns are, are staying in hotels that are within Johannes's domain. Yeah. Uh, so that's fun. Yep. Um, I, I, wonder, I wonder if Johannes even wants vestiges of them in his domain. <laughs> just be... Too annoying to handle, yeah. Yeah, sort of took one look at them and was like, mm, no thanks, I don't even want you. Yeah, I like um, the idea that Johannes has like manipulated them into staying there as some kind of 
you know, bid for some pawns to hold over Rose, but they're just Ooh. so unuseful in that regard because she doesn't <laughs> give a shit about them. Well, um, I mean, the great thing is, and this is very packed, he wouldn't even need to manipulate them to stay in town because it's just because of what he represents in the the structure of Jacob's Bell. All the yeah. hotels are there anyway, so yeah, it's true. just naturally things fall that way, and he's yep. set it up like that. It's it's very good. Yeah. Um. But so the other thing Blake does before. Uh, going to harass the Bahames is he ruminates on where he stands with Rose. Mm. Uh, and this is obviously something this arc has dealt with quite explicitly a number of times uh, because it's on a lot of people's minds, not yep. just Blake's. Yeah. Uh, and like, I think he's coming more around to, to being okay with her. Mm. Like, you know, in 10.1, he was basically ready to kill her. And I mean, so was I. And then <laughs> uh, in 10.2, he basically told the faceless woman and the revenant that he, you know, hadn't really decided what he had plans to do with her, you know, yeah. like, uh, you know, basically implying that murdering was still in the cards. Yeah. And then here he says his main goal is he just wants to clear her head and get her back to normal, um, yeah. which is, you know, uh, like so far away from where he was ever since we got the reveal that she fucking lied to him for the whole first uh, seven arcs. Yeah. So... Uh, I mean, this for me is one of the bits that I put on the column of mentally he's not such a murderous other anymore. Yeah, which is fair because he has kind of cooled on murdering her, um, which I guess is a good thing. I mean, like, it doesn't feel like I should be giving him points for that, but all right. Like, <laughs> um, but I don't know. Like, uh, th- to contrast that, the thing he does next is he just kind of decides, oh, I'm going to go fuck somebody up. Ah, oh, let's just do the Bahames, right? Like... And granted, it doesn't end up being uh, an, uh, like violent or anything, but I think it could have been. And I, I, I think the way he thinks about these things now, the fact that he just thinks, what should I do? Oh, I'll just go, you know, fuck with these people. It's, I, I feel like it's, again, a slide in the wrong direction. Honestly, to me, this feels like textbook old school Blake. Like, it, it, this was a classic Blake plan TM, mm. uh, which was Bahames. That was the whole plan. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Maybe this is a sign that he's back to normal. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, like, I, yeah, I really think he just decided that the Bahamas were the best ones to target for a thing. For shenanigans, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, this this ends up coming together as just a bit of a, an attempt at a fact-finding mission, which then turns into uh, a conversion uh, you know, sort of attempt. Yeah. So, like, you know, I think pretty peaceful in the end. Yeah, I guess that's fair enough. I don't know. Just the fact that he, it, you know, it's kind of a, if <laughs> it feels like, oh, I've got a few hours to kill. What should I, what's my hobby at the moment? Oh, yeah, it's fucking with Bahames. <laughs> like, it feels, <laughs> it feels like he's skipped a step or two to get to being aggressive towards other practitioners. Yeah, I mean, I, he doesn't really have anywhere else to go, to yep. be fair. Like, that's sort of part of his thought process before ending up at the Bahames is, you know, we know Blake can't sit still and he doesn't really have anywhere else to go, so he just goes to do this. Mm. I suppose you're right. Um, so Blake jumps over to the Bahames' house and sees them kind of rallying for war. A bunch of cars, but he isn't able to actually get inside to where people meet are meeting, so he kind of scopes it out for a little bit and then decides to follow the first set of Bahames that he sees. They jump into a car, so does Blake, and he just starts listening. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty decent information gathering plan. Uh, it yep. doesn't really work out that way, but it was it was an all right attempt. Yeah. Um, yeah, I... 
an interesting thing that happens here is he jumps into the car and he kind of times closing of the car door on his side of the mirror reality with them closing the car door on their side of the mirror reality. And this is just something that was interesting to me because like it it's Blake kind of ruminates on the on how the the uh the two worlds being linked works, but he still doesn't have a very strong grasp of interactions of of how that works. Which indicates, one, he didn't really ask Rose that much about it, which, yeah, in character. But, uh, you know, if I was if I was Blake, establishing rules for what, what how things work would have been one of my first things that I did. He kind of just vibes it out. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I mean, I feel like we sort of hit, had some similar ideas early in the book um, where we were getting frustrated with Blake and Rose a bit for not being nerds like us and just wanting to, like, test all the limits and, and do it very scientifically. You, yeah. know, you know what? Rose probably did want to, but Blake wasn't helping. Yeah. Because um, that would be very Rose. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I'm very much like, I, I'm the sort of person who would have just scientifically started testing the limits of this world. But yeah, uh, Blake is a much more freeform uh, worker than us. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess that's d- literally his character that was made for him, right? Yeah, true. Um, so he's listening to these two behames and they're having such a... I don't know, like, mundane conversation. It's about the war and things that are going on, but it's very... It feels very unexciting, as in it's not exciting to them. I mean, I'm assuming they don't go to war all the time, but it feels relatively normal for them to be in this situation. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, you know, remember we saw, like, in Toronto a number of times, particularly with the young Bahames that are... Yeah. Uh, the This sort of stuff, like, you know, the things Blake goes through on a day-to-day basis are, like, once-in-a-lifetime things for the average practitioner. Yeah. Uh, so, like, you know, it, we keep sort of needing reminders that normal practitioners can just have, like, a normal life. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Maybe that's the point of this, isn't to show that they're used to this. It's just that they're practitioners, yes, but they're also people unlike Blake, who is kind of consumed by his role in the Pactverse. I mean, I guess that's... Yeah. Uh, maybe that's a bad example, because Blake is kind of explicitly designed to be a role in the Pact universe. But, I don't know, it feels like yeah. he should be able to have a bit more of a life. Actually, ju- just jumping on that, I don't know if we've actually explicitly said this on the podcast yet, but, like, the idea of such a... Like, Pact deals with metatextual stuff yeah. so much... And so the idea of the protagonist having been created in universe as well as like for the text is just so good. Mm. I, I don't think we've actually yeah. mentioned that till now. So I just want to I just want to <laughs> officially say that that uh it is so good. It's yeah. classic pact. It, 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 in fact, like it's probably that's probably why I I should have seen it coming the most mm. because it's it's such a packed thing to do to be like hey uh you know we have this protagonist who seems really well designed for this book because in the book <laughs> he was well designed for the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is good, isn't it? And it, 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 I love how it just ties together so many interesting things of like, like even what we're talking about here, the fact that Blake, you know, is obsessed with being a practitioner and that's literally all of his life. Well, yeah, okay, that makes sense because it's literally all of his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, but anyway, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so, so Blake's kind of snooping on them, uh, but. Of course, as soon as the conversation gets to anything interesting, they notice Blake because he is bad at snooping. 
<laughs> yeah, these bad snooping skills are going to be the death of me. This is my least favorite thing about Blake. Like, it, if he becomes a murder monster, but part of it is he becomes good at snooping, I'll call it a draw. Yeah, like, <laughs> so he's just sitting in the back of the car listening. He could have, like, crouched down behind the seats. He could have done anything, but he just kind of sits there waiting for them to notice him. It's I, kind I think, of stupid. I think early in the conversation, he mentions he was crouching. Oh, uh, okay. Um, but then... Obviously, when he is noticed, he says he just sort of is able to stare directly into the, like, reverse yeah. mirror. Yeah. So, I have a feeling he maybe lost track of the fact he was meant to be crouching. Yeah. Um, as he went. I don't know. Yeah. I think so. Uh, Blakey Goober. Anyway, the Bahames <laughs> notice Blake, and rather than immediately take action, there's there's an interesting few moments where they kind of just have a conversation. I mean, not even a few moments, a few minutes, right? Um, they, they converse about the state of the Bahame family and Blake kind of chit chats to them before they finally kick him out of the car. Yeah. Um, you know, he sort of actually has an opportunity to have them hear him out because they don't know what his deal is. So they can't really do anything quite so easily or not confidently that they're not confident that they could do something before he can kill them. Yeah. And he, you know, does a little bit to assuade their fears in that regard, but Mm. not enough, Mm. um, to fully get rid of them. But I give him a pass for that because, uh, like, I think if he had done too good a job, uh, they maybe would have just attacked him. So he's sort of trying to walk that line. Yeah. So, so the interesting thing about what Blake does here is he he's kind of we've talked about him whether he's becoming more other or not. I, I do like that he kind of does take a little bit of delight in uh, in acting like a spooky monster. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, w- it would be fun to be a like a mirror monster. I remember this is this happened at the start of Act One when he was kind of jumping around to the mirrors in the Thorburn house almost instinctively, and I love the way he acts here, just kind of keeping them on edge. Yeah, and again, because this is packed, it no doubt helps uh, with his you know um, performance. So, like, the fact that they don't attack him may have something to do with yeah uh, the the spirits enjoying him putting on a bit of a show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I enjoyed it, so that must mean the spirits enjoy it too. Um, <laughs> exactly. I do worry about Blake because he kind of acts like he's untouchable in the mirror dimension, which we kind of know for sure isn't a thing. I mean, you know, uh, Molly's ghost was able to affect him. The, the Tweedledee, Tweedledums were able to affect him. And none of those things, like Molly's ghost, I'm not going to say is a very powerful thing like that seemed like some basic practicing um yeah i suspect it was a rune like runes don't seem to be super advanced yeah someone who actually knows what they're doing i suspect could really fuck with blake here um i i i don't know he feels a bit overconfident yeah um again i think uh i think he's sort of playing off that line that uh so he's walking down that line of trying to be scary enough that they don't want to instantly attack him in case he's more powerful than they think, but mm. um, not trying to come across as so powerful that he's warrants, like, actual focus. Yeah, that's um, fair. I worry like, if- I think Jazandra uh, Gis- is probably the <laughs> only team that is actively after him. Yeah, as soon as he uh, kind of... And they're also the only people who actually really know what he is. I mean, Faisal knows who he is now. Yeah. It doesn't seem... Faisal doesn't seem to have all the context about what Blake Thorburn means. <laughs> Um, oh, maybe even then. Faisal seems cool with it either way, yeah. uh, apparently. I suspect when um, when the Bahames find out who he is, or when these two report back to Duncan, more specifically, because that's the point when Duncan seems to know enough to be able to piece it together, the Bahames are going to be a lot less <laughs> friendly towards him. 
In fact, there's a, there's a few uh, bits in this conversation in the car that actually lead me to think that Blake uh, suspects that Duncan remembers more than, you know, maybe he should. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, of what went down in Toronto, uh, yeah, there's which the moment- sort of lines up with how Duncan's part of 7.x ended. Yes. Yes, because there's that moment where the male behame in this scene guesses, oh, you're the one who killed Laird, right? Which feels mm-hmm. like that's some insider knowledge from Duncan um, kind of manifesting. Yeah. Well, and, and, and yeah, I don't know. There's just something about what they, something they said about Duncan and, and some other stuff Blake says makes me think that, uh, Duncan's operating on a, a more Blake aware level than a lot of other people in the story right now, mm. uh, which should be should be interesting because obviously we know uh, Faisal's there and and Sandra and and, and Jezza are kind of there as well. So uh, you know Blake's Blake doesn't really have as much anonymity as he would like. I yeah, think, and moment. that has been his greatest asset up till now. I, yeah, I suspect part of what we're seeing is the threads pointing to the fact that everyone will just kind of know who Blake is from the next arc onwards. Yeah. Um. So, so the the last thing I wanted to bring up from this little conversation in the mm. car is, uh, so there's talk of presumably picking the next heir. Well, that's mm. the thing. I think it's heavily implied, and Blake definitely assumes that they are they were having votes to decide who is the ne- going to be the next in charge after Duncan, or Duncan doesn't want to be in charge, so they're picking who's going to be in charge now. Yeah. Um, and apparently one of the favorites is an 18 year old. Mm-hmm. So, um. I just got to really question what the Bahams think they're doing in this contest. Like, what are they trying to achieve even? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, ever since Duncan said, yeah, I'm making a play, like, I feel like we've all had this response of, wait, really? Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, especially now that we find out Duncan's probably not even going to lead the pack. Um, although, I mean, like, the only other idea I had here is that they're like, maybe going to propose another marriage al- uh, a marriage agreement with Rose. Mm. I don't really know why I've pulled that out. Uh, like, I don't think there's much to support the read here, but it could be there. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, so Blake next kind of moves on to find Sandra and doesn't just find Sandra, also finds Jeremy. Yay. Yay. Bonus. Double, two for yeah. one. Um, How exciting. <laughs> and And to kind of play off the idea of Blake being a bit overconfident, the tone from Blake following these two compared to the tone when he's with the Bahames, it feels immediately more dangerous because uh, they, they as enchantresses, kind of are able to, we see almost immediately, kind of spot him straight away if he isn't sneaky. So his sneakiness skills are really put to the test here. Yes, and of course one of the first things um, Jeremy and Sandra talk about as well is uh, the mirror dweller being a high priority. And so that also raises the stakes because it's like, okay, not only are they good at spotting him, but we get explicit confirmation that uh, Jeremy and Sandra have him painted as a target. So mm. uh, if, he's, like, if he gets spotted, he's in serious trouble. Yes, those two you don't want to uh, mess with, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so Blake eavesdrops to their conversation, and Sandra and Jeremy are basically planning how they're going to deal with Rose. Um, <laughs> Blake's kind of able to glean some some interesting pieces of information here. So... Okay, I just sort of brought up the whole marriage thing with the Bahames. And the reason that sort of mm. popped into my head was because I got that vibe here a bunch during my live read. Mm. And I went back through and I I still think it's a valid read. And so maybe I'm just, maybe I've just got my tinfoil hat on a bit too tight. But I almost feel like Jeremy isn't going to attack Rose. He's going there to offer her some sort of deal to take her to Toronto. Mm. Um. I'm very interested to see what happens with uh, Jeremy and Rose next chapter. Yeah, interesting. Like part, 
part of me almost thinks that Sandra and Jeremy, the way they say goodbye here, might maybe Jer- maybe they got divorced and Jeremy's planning on marrying Rose. That seems a little bit too far fetched, but uh, that would be really fucking interesting uh, to see the responses to that from everyone. I hope not, because I do think Jeremy and Sandra are such a f- like a good. I just I know they have their problems, but I'm just I'm holding out hope for these two. You know, um, there's a few moments where Jeremy kind of helps Sandra adjust her body language in order to be a bit more kind of like playing the role of the matriarch of the Duchamp family because he's outside of this. He's able to kind of see it a bit better. And it's such a nice little moment of them just kind of having a nice interaction that feels kind of genuine and I don't know, like not necessarily loving, but supportive. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. In, in fact, the conversation for me takes on this really heartbreaking yeah. feel because they're clearly so in love with each other. Mm. Or, and they're essentially- I don't, I don't think it's love. I think it's just, or it's love, but not kind of, not an infatuated love, more of a respectful love, you know? No, of course. And, and I mean, that's sort of what we saw in Sandra's interview. Yeah, like, Jeremy, Jeremy and his God, you know, for him- uh, like a, a romance with someone is never going to be a mostly sexual thing because he's kind of got that base covered um, through yep. his day job. So, like, f- there's, there's a real emotional connection between yeah. these two. Yeah, that's and, true. And it, there's a real sense that they, you know, they've, they've been reunited a bit and they both clearly want to be with the other one, but because of the paths they've chosen, uh, they, they can't do that. So there's a sort of goodbye sense. And, I mean, you know, it's just as... It's just as heartbreaking as most of the other interactions we've seen with them in the last, like, <laughs> yeah. five years, uh, where there's this sense of they just want to be together, but for different reasons, they can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's I mean, true. I, we'll see. I, I, another thing that sort of occurred to me while I was thinking about, like, all this, Jezza going back to Toronto, I'd never really considered what Toronto would be like if Jeremy, like, took it over. Mm. Um Imagine it'd be a pretty lively place mm. uh, with a you know an acolyte of Dionysus in charge. You'd think it would become quite hedonistic. Which is is Toronto yeah. a hedonistic city contemporarily? Maybe we're getting well, hints. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm thinking like the whole place would turn into like the the red light district of Amsterdam type, <laughs> type situation. Mm, maybe. Um, anyway, Sandra and Jeremy kind of part ways here in a bit of a melancholic moment between the two of them. Um, Jeremy is going to Hillsglade House to deal with Rose, while Sandra seems to be headed for Mags to deal with her. Blake has to choose which way is he going to go. Mags. <laughs> yep. Yeah, right, Next easy. question. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> something I like is Sandra says, hopefully the girl hasn't committed, which is an interesting comment that doesn't quite fit into what they're, or it doesn't quite fit into what we have seen of their conversation. So we need to read into it a little bit. And the read that I think into it is Sandra worrying that Mags has committed to being, you know, having Molly as her familiar with the mm. idea that that is definitely means they're against each other. Um, and I was going to say that it feels sad that Sandra has to attack Mags, but then I was like, well, she doesn't have to. She's choosing to do this. I don't have to feel bad for her. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree. I actually took the very different route. This is, this is one of the lines that made me think the um sandra and jeremy are planning to set rose up with someone or maybe Mm. take her to toronto um like i i wrote i read it as like rose hopefully rose hasn't committed to being in jacob's bell or something you know yeah interesting um i i sort of read it as having to do with rose but i agree your your read makes sense as well Mm. um i mean it's interesting if mags is losing her place as the ambassador uh or as the neutral party because of what she does with molly here um 
will having Molly as a familiar be enough to fortify her without that role? Because we mm. kind of know that's what's that's all that's keeping her together at the moment. Um, yeah, that I mean, that'll be interesting to see. We'll see, I suppose. Um, also, wasn't wasn't Mags at the Hillsglade house last time we saw? Like Jeremy and Sandra yes. could just carpool. <laughs> I get the sense that they that we're close enough now that they're close enough now that they are going to split up slightly to deal with them. I mean, I think they're yeah. not necessarily right next to each other anymore. More like, you know, one's out in the forest and one's at the house, which is maybe 10 minutes away. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, that's the end of Malafide 10.5. I guess we will continue to see uh, where this chapter goes. Just a fun little note that I thought of that doesn't, doesn't really fit into anywhere in the notes. Um, the, the chapter title means bad faith, uh, mm-hmm. and we now have... A villain who is a priest uh, taking an active role in this chapter, which I like. <laughs> <laughs> a very on-the-nose meaning of bad faith, I suppose. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's um, a nice, nice little connection. This is an interesting chapter because it is. it, it does feel like a in-between chapter. Like, it's the moments in between the kind of earlier threat of Molly and dealing with that and the, the second half of this arc, which presumably deals with Sandra attacking Mags and Jeremy attacking Rose. Or at least one yeah. of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even though it is a kind of a bridging chapter, there is a lot of interesting little juicy bits to get out of it. And it's it's interesting that our episode has gone... Like, normally a chapter like this, <laughs> we would talk for 30 or 35 minutes, but this one's shaping up to be a 50 or 55-er. Yeah, man, Arc 10 is, is really uh, getting our... Getting yes. our times up. I, I shudder to think of how long we're going to talk about the Arc 10 interlude for. <laughs> um, yes, well, let's let's move on and, and keep it clamped down. <laughs> uh, and we'll move into our bonus bit. Yes. For this thing. Uh, and we're doing a comment dive. Yeah, so I was originally going to go through the comments and see how many people were in favour of Blake going to Mags and how many were in favour of choosing Rose. But nobody cho- chose Rose. <laughs> Everyone picked Mags, so that didn't really work. Um, yeah, Rose isn't winning any popularity contests <laughs> i mean even right the fact now. that it's it's not he's not really choosing rose he'd be choosing to to check up on you know the cabal um apparently That's not fair. enough to swing it against all the <laughs> negative rose energies uh i mean it, i i have to imagine uh, maybe it's just me but i have to imagine mags is a huge fan favorite um yes i mean she's one of my favorites yes going through these comments there was a surprising amount of um maybe like three or four comments mentioning that now green eyes is back it puts the uh blake and mag's ship in danger jesus <laughs> oh anyway. uh moving on i so we put out some <laughs> other comments that that brought up some interesting things and this is one that I, I i put out a comment by someone called uh anya anya and it was an interesting one uh it's a short one so i'll just read it out uh, they said, I'm like 85% confident that despite the Ivy thing, Blake wasn't the vestige. It's just that all his connections got eaten, so he stopped existing. So his friends and everyone else filled in the void. After Rose started existing, they filled in the gaps by having her replace Blake in their interactions. Um, it's a fun little fan theory. I mean, it's definitely not what Blake believes, and it's definitely not what the drains showed to Blake. But it does make a certain kind of sense, if you think about it. And I quite like it as a as a fan theory. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, like. I, I could see this working in universe, I guess. Um, but metatextually, like it, it was such a big revelation. It's defined so much of the story since it would be a little weird for <laughs> just to hit, hit the undo button. Yeah. Do a quick on, control uh, Z. Yeah. Yeah. On the Blake as a vestige twist. Um, so I, I think that not long after it, um, like I sort of started talking about how I was thinking that maybe there was like Rose original 
and then you know she was like closer to cut in half than mm. um like a, a vestige copy made like you know i talked about how it, it's not just that blake was designed it's that both of them were mm. and I, I like i still think that's probably the case and like i think that lines up better with with anya's sort of take like you know it, there are parts that are Blake original that have slotted into, oh no, sorry. There are parts that are Rose original that now belong to Blake that have gone back to Rose because of the connection cutting. Is this making any sense? No, it makes sense. Uh, as okay. an as an example, I'd be interested to hear what you think is a like a Rose original or like belonged to the Rose half that now belongs to the Blake half and then back again. I guess. Yeah. Well, so I think I think things like Alexis. Like I I, mm. I bet I think maybe Alexis was a friend of the original Rose. Um, mm. and there's maybe some truth to the Carl stuff because we got the confirmation that Carl's real. Mm. So like Alexis would be something that was she was friends with the original Rose. Um, they got cut in half, and it turned into something that was on Blake's half because Rose Senior didn't want uh those connections to be that strong with Rose. She wants uh, her conquesty Rose. Yep. Uh, and and then obviously during the fallout with her, uh, those connections sort of snapped back to the current Rose as the closest thing. Yeah, interesting. Okay, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, that was my comment, and I, I like the spin that you've brought to it because it allows this fan theory to still kind of live on in a in a more metatextually consistent way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I have pulled out a comment by quite possibly a cat, <laughs> uh, which is a very fun username. Um, and quite possibly a cat brought up that uh, like demons can hurt gods. Mm. We've we've seen this uh, <laughs> in the drains. Yeah. Um. So it's interesting that, that, like, you know, Barb is up in the attic um, while Jeremy is apparently going to, you know, storm the door in with his god powers. Um, yeah, I guess to, to spin off of this as well, we know that Barbatorum can deny people access to the afterlife, which is presumably, presumably severing a bond between the human and the god. So maybe there's something there. Yeah, I mean, we don't know enough about what the afterlife situation is in fact mm. um, to, to sort of weigh in. Like, you know, is it, like, are there afterlifes for each god? Is that a thing where a, a god, if a god or a set of gods gets powerful enough, they get their own afterlife dimension they control? Mm. Um, like, like, who knows? But, uh, like, like, yeah, you're right. Barbatorum's been set up to disrupt your fundamental connection to the afterlife, which, you know, it ties into religion a lot. Yeah. And I- obviously now uh, we have, like, a religious man. Um, going to fight Rose while Barb's is up in the attic. Yes. Uh, it should be fun. Yeah, I like the idea of Barbatorum potentially being able to sever Jeremy's connection to Dionysus. That would be an interesting way for that to play out. Yeah, especially because I'm assuming that for a fair amount of acolytes, uh, promises of what you get in the afterlife is a, an important part of, of the deal. <laughs> I mean, what what is Jeremy hoping to get in the afterlife that he doesn't already kind of get provided for now? I mean, I don't know, but if your choice is like a a, a good afterlife or a bad afterlife, yeah, sure. goes for I- eternity. Um, you, you know, you're gonna do what you can to get the good one, presumably. Yes, I wonder why diabolists. I mean, you know, maybe diabolists think, hey, going to a bad afterlife if it's ruled by a demon that I served wouldn't be so bad. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's that dumb. I assume they're just not thinking of that stuff when they make their dumb mistakes that <sighs> put their whole lineage in in danger. Short sighted. Yeah. Anywho. Yeah. 
Um, so those were some comments from uh, th- when this chapter first came out five years ago. Thanks for joining us for this episode discussing Malafide 10.5. If you feel like we didn't quite discuss Malafide 10.5 enough and you want to discuss it more, the place <laughs> to do that is in our discussion thread, which will be linked in the uh, episode description down below. Yes, uh, and of course we'll be hitting up uh, Malafide 10.6 uh, the day after this chapter airs on our Twitter, which is at MediaMDPodcast, as I jump into live read it for the first time. Yes, um, yes, exactly. Uh, our Twitter, at MediaMDPodcast, is one way to get in touch with us, but another great way would be to head to doofmedia.com, which is the home of this show and all the other great shows on the Doof Media Network, including the Doofcast. Uh, they just released an episode talking about The Wicked and the Divine, which is a comic book that has uh, ideas of theology in a modern world tied into it as well. Um, so if that's that's your jam, which it might be, considering that's kind of what we're talking about here in Pact, <laughs> uh, you should check out The Wicked and the Divine as well. And of course, if you want to keep Doof afloat and, and keep, you know, places like the Doofcast uh, doing cool episodes like that, in fact, I think The Wicked and Divine was a Patreon uh episode a right? patron produced episode that's right if you yes. donate at i think twenty dollars a month and up you can produce a an episode of the doof cast where they discuss a, a literary work or if you donate at 45 dollars and up you can produce a audiovisual uh doof cast episode about a tv show series hold on i'm just double checking double know, check fact right. check it for us elliot um okay uh, yes, yeah, so at the $20 level, uh, you get a, sh- a short story or a movie. Uh, you get to produce an episode on one of those. Uh, mm. And then at the $45 or more, uh, you get to do an ep- or you get to produce an episode of the Doofcast relating to a television series, um, you know, or the first season of one. Yep. Uh, or, or to select a book for the book club. Yes. Um, now, if that sounds like a lot of money per month, that's fair enough. There's some other lower tier perks you can get as well uh the one of the newest perks is the five dollar uh, doof dancer i believe it's called uh mm-hmm. pledge level which gives you access to a new thing that we're doing which is the doof and chill streams yeah and so these are these are a once a month uh fun thing that we're doing where uh you know as many doofers as, as we can get for that uh friday night american time saturday australia time uh we all get together and, and do something fun on a stream so uh, we did one last week in fact and we uh well, you know, a few days ago when this airs, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, where we all played uh, Jackbox with, yes. with some of our patrons. It was very was a lot fun. Of fun. Um, you will probably be able to see a an edited down highlights version of that on the Doof YouTube channel. But if you want to participate and view the whole thing, you'll need to be a patron at $5 a month or more. So go on over to patreon.com slash doofmedia to check out more information about that. Yes. And while we're talking about Patreon, uh, Wildbo has a Patreon patreon.com slash wildbo mm-hmm. and obviously you know it, his patron is what results in like pact and ward and and twig and whatever comes next so you know uh if you're loving these stories as much as we are you should uh throw some money wildbo's way if you can it's a very it's a very like there's a lot of reasons to do it but here's one that you might not have thought about wildbo writes bonus chapters based on donations so if you're enjoying this show and you're enjoying shows like we've got ward uh, on another show on the Doof Media Network. If you want more content on those shows, you can back Wildbo, then he'll write more stuff. He'll write bonus content, and then these shows will have to cover that bonus content. So you can kind of invest in yourself to uh, to enjoy more content for yourself something like three or four months down the line by donating money to Wildbo on Patreon.com. Not, not to undermine everything you just said, but does he still do that anymore? I don't think he does. Does he? Oh, gosh. I'm so, like so much impacted. We haven't had it. 
we haven't th- we haven't had a Thursday chapter since Eclipse. I don't think. <laughs> like, yeah. I just, we'll see. Um, anyway, if you want to find out, go to Wabbo's Patreon. I'm sure the info's on there. Yeah. Okay. Um, but apart from that, we'll see everyone for uh, Malafide 10.6 on Friday, the 30th of August. See you then.